Welcome to the Trusted Advisor Podcast brought to you by Iroquois Group. Iroquois is your trusted advisor in all things insurance. This week, you're listening to the special segment of Charlie's Corner, hosted by our very own Charlie Venus. Welcome back to our guest, Ali Allage, CEO of Blue Steel Cybersecurity. We are continuing our conversation from last week on how working remotely has changed the landscape of cybersecurity. Now, how has remote work changed the landscape of cybersecurity? A lot of what I've seen, a lot of organizations have difficulties in uh, ensuring that policies and procedures are being followed. What we're seeing is that the end user is installing more devices, running into challenges, because quite frankly, a lot of these organizations that had to quickly switch to remote work environments weren't necessarily prepared to do so. And with that comes a lot of rules being created on the fly. And so when you have rules being created on the fly, you have these gaps. Uh, And during those gaps, you have users that are sort of installing applications that normally they wouldn't install if they were in the office that are opening up security compromises um, and and vulnerabilities. There's been a lot of efforts in in the sense of assessments and doing scan and vulnerability tests on the end user devices and seeing what sort of operations are being conducted on the end user devices and then reining it back into some sort of controlled environment, managed environment. You know, security professionals, we all want to have managed environments because then we know what's being added, what's being removed. When it went to remote, that sort of went into the wild, wild west. And that managed feeling has gone away. And so we're, everyone's trying to bring it back to manage. So when you look at a policy for remote workers, would some of those things just being that it's all company-issued equipment that the workers are using, not their own personal equipment yeah. and devices? We have some customers that have had policies for full reimbursement for technology purchases, right? So if you joined the company and you wanted to buy, let's say, a MacBook, you got full reimbursement for that. That's even, you know, in the case with mobile devices, mobile devices are probably one of the hardest devices to rein in as far as management is concerned uh, for security management. What the position is, it, it's sort of the competitive landscape for keeping great personnel in and hiring or attracting new talent. There's a compromise that's being made in the sense of we want uh, users to be happy with the technologies that they bring to the table, right? Not everyone is a PC user, for example, and prefer a MacBook. Not everyone's a MacBook and they prefer PC usage. And a lot of times there's an overlap in personal usage amongst a business. Some of the tool sets that are out there that are available to security professionals allow for management of individual devices while still keeping it somewhat secured. So it may not be something where they're able to do whatever it is they want, but it keeps it in a place where there's a happy medium. And I think without the, those tools and in the match of the policies, I think this would have been really difficult. If I think about in terms of a couple of years ago, this probably wasn't possible. Uh, and I remember those days because everyone, when we were talking about work at home policies for like one day a week, it was about how do I measure productivity of my end user? How do I know whether or not they're doing work when they're not in the office? And so I think it sort of evolved from that mindset of like, well, forget about that so much. How do I make sure that the end user is happy and is able to use their device in some ways in the way they want, but while we're still being able to manage our security practices, it all comes down to some of these tool sets that are available. And I think that's made it a lot easier to manage. What's the cost to firms if they don't have a cybersecurity program? And does size really matter when it comes to having a 
a cybersecurity program. Well, what's the cost to the organization? It's hard to measure. And the reason why I say that, because you can see ransoms that are out there, right? 5 million, 1 million, 500,000, whatever, right? And so that's a measurable cost. So whatever you, you pay or don't pay in ransom has its own measure cost. I think the part that's sort of difficult to sort of measure is the impact, right? So if you have a breach, chances are it's going to be known somehow if you're focused on uh, presenting a posture of saying that, you know, working with us, building trust with your the organizations and customers, uh, security is a com- major component to that. I, I look at it as a marketing component, a very valuable marketing component. And if that's violated in any way, it's difficult to sort of come back from that, right? We've seen major organizations that have had breaches have to go through rebrand because ultimately the the age of the brand doesn't matter anymore if you had a breach, right? So I would say it's significant in terms of the cost of depending on the size of the organization. We as vendors look at it in terms of a per user cost, right? So there is a cost associated in, in terms of management of every individual user in the organization. So if you're a 50 person user base, right, it's going to be a different cost than if say you have 250 just because of the quantity of users. But I think as you scale the organization to 500,000, several thousand, the impact of all those moving parts and how much data acquisition is occurring, who has access to what data, forgetting the fact of you being breached, if you have a disgruntled staff member, the exposure is such a high, high cost, it's unbelievable. I typically say as a vendor, outside of having a cybersecurity risk policy in place, we as vendors are an additional supplement to that insurance policy. We ensure that you meet the requirements and the compliance of that policy, one. But two, we help the reputation of the organization by minimizing and showing that there's active pursuit of maintaining a cybersecurity maturity that prevents most of these common uh, breaches that are occurring out there. Now, on that topic, when you look at the breaches that are occurring, and if a company does have a cybersecurity program in place, what percentage of these breaches would be eliminated or prevented? There was an interesting statistic out there. Most of the breaches that are occurring, a majority of them are what we call, I guess, kiddie programmers, right? So what that means are these are inexperienced developers, technologists, that are picking up pieces of frameworks that are out there floating for what we call frameworks out there for them to adopt. And using that model I was mentioning about sending out the phishing emails to 1,000 users or 5,000 users. The majority of the attacks that occur and get exploited are from those initial efforts. So these are statistically younger people that have very little experience using standardized or like off-the-shelf hacking techniques and penetrating these major organizations. And so when you ask me the question of, you know, if a company has basic level cybersecurity hygiene, what's the percentage of prevention? It's significant. And I don't know, I might be crucified for saying this because a lot of times we see security promotion saying, if you adopt this practice, you won't get penetrated. It's hundred percent safe. Statistically not true. You're just trying to prevent 90 to 95% of what's occurring out there and not becoming a statistic. Whereas the 5% that's occurring, those are at a, such a high level of sophistication that if you've been targeted, your security program has to go to a whole different level uh, because you have someone that's actively pursuing you that's highly experienced. But the majority of these cases, most of them, 90% of them 
are based on inexperienced uh, individuals that are just gaining access because a basic control wasn't met. What type of assessments are there for the cybersecurity programs that are in place? Well, it depends. Everyone has their approaches. I look at it in the sense of compliance. So NIST has great standards to follow, NIST 800-171. There are different other international standards like ISO 27001. The approach we take is that we look in, in terms of NIST 800-171 as a baseline. It's about 110 controls. It sort of covers a wide range of different variables. There is a scan and vulnerability side to the systems. There is a risk assessment interview uh, that's done across the organization. So we try to look at the human side and capture that. We look at the technical side. And then I think what's really important is once you identify vulnerabilities or as you're scanning the systems, is to pick and choose some approaches of th- what we call threat modeling and, and attacking. So we would exploit vulnerabilities that exist and, and see, could we obtain access to certain pieces of information? I think, you know, red flagging, you know, this could be an issue, that could be an issue is one thing. But I think also showing that the fact that we use that in order to gain certain access privileges is really it hits home. I think every time we do these assessments, right, we you talk about the risk assessment interview, you sort of get glazed over looks. We say, look, here's your vulnerability scans that we've done and show you all these things that are prioritized from critical high and areas that you have to address. You know, I know from an executive level, both of these are like, oh my gosh, how much is this going to cost me to sort of put this together? But when we show that we took one of these items, right, and we ran a threat model and we gain exposure or XYZ pieces of information, it changes everything. Because when you can say that you can use it towards an advantage as an outsider coming in, um, it sort of hits home. So that's how we conduct our assessments. We want to really tie it back in and show, you know, this could really happen. You should address these certain areas of gaps. We have members out there, as I said earlier, that are out there selling cyber liability policies to protect their clients against these cyber losses. When they're going out there to meet with their clients and they're trying to do an assessment. Yeah. In simple terms, what would be the focus of the three or five questions that they would be asking their clients about what their current cybersecurity controls are? Being the compliance person, I would ask, is there a specific compliance that the organization is striving for or is looking to obtain a security compliance or some form of it? going through HIPAA compliance, there's just, there are security controls there as an example, but if they were going for an ISO certification or going through those kinds of compliance measures to ask them, what is the approach there? The second thing would be, if there was a security incident, who gets called on first? Who is the reporting person, the frontline person in the case of a security incident happening? I usually like to ask that question because sometimes the person that you're asking is fumbling with it. And if you see a fumble, chances are that it's not even thought out, which would be a red flag or concern. And then I would ask the question, I think I mentioned this early on, is out of the entire organization, do you guys practice security awareness training? And is the staff you know, up to speed as far as your security practices and sort of get an answer there? And my follow-up question would be, can I randomly choose someone in the office and just ask them about the policy you know, right after this meeting? And so see if their eyes light up or something like that occurs, right? Because um, then they'll help them validate whether or not something exists. <laughs> and then ask them periodically, how many times out of the year do you do a third-party independent vulnerability assessment or a security assessment? Do you do third-party audits? Now, I like that question because 
the compliance measures that are coming out in place and they're sort of evolving are all moving towards third-party evaluation. And so asking them, do they do third-party evaluation and who that third party is, that will help kind of give another guidance. And I think those are good, great basic questions. The idea of trying to really gauge to see if they have security practices in place, one, that they didn't just grab off the shelf, but two, to see if they're in practice. I think those are two distinct areas. Anyone can go grab templates. Anyone can go source those pieces of information because they're out there and they're freely available. I think the tough part for a lot of organizations is whether or not they put it into practice because that takes organizational effort. That takes the sort of executives promoting it and distributing it amongst the entire staff. I try to look for those two areas and see where they are as far as maturity level. And when you get to the remote workforce, would you be asking, can I contact somebody or a couple of people remotely to see oh, yeah. how they respond? Oh, yeah. I would highly suggest a phone call or, or a Zoom call. I, a video call would be the best. A phone call would be second tier. And then the rest, if you have to do via email. <laughs> Clearly, because email has too much, too many gaps, people could search for answers or when I provided. Obviously, the video part will, again, I, I mentioned the white in their eyes. You want to see that. You want to see the surprised look to kind of give you all the information you need right there. <laughs> what about multi-factor authentication? And just briefly there, we have some of our carriers that write cyber liability coverage. They are now requiring multi-factor authentication to even offer the coverage now, which is relatively new just in the last couple yeah. of months. All these pieces are very great starting points and they should be employed. Cybersecurity is not a task, it's a program. I'm a big fan of identifying what your focus of your program is and then adding these puzzle pieces to complement that program, to supplement that program. When it comes to multi-factor, I think it should be enabled across the board, hands down. But I think there should be a layer of detail into that, how that's enabled. Because in certain cases, even with multi-factor, some of the stage gates can still be penetrated. One example would be, you know, a lot of organizations use multi-factor where it sends an email confirmation code or it sends a text message. Those are two areas of, of compromise still. Some of the areas that I would recommend is looking at like Google Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator, some of these Authenticator apps where they generate the codes for you based on a scan. Those are probably the best bet when you enable multi-factor and maintains the program, keeps things pretty well secured. Applications that, or services that don't offer multi-factor really comes down to just making sure you identify the inventory of what is and what isn't multi-factor capable and figuring out different solutions to make sure the ones that are not able to enable it to come up with different ways of trying to secure and lock down those accesses. Where do you see the cybercrime going? Do you see us uh, getting control of that in any way, shape, or form, or do you see it just uh, ballooning even more? So there's a couple of ways I could answer that. You know, I think in terms of it growing, when you say ballooning more, I, I see that growing exponentially. The reason why I say that is because it's becoming a business model. And as we know, with anything that has a real full-fledged business model, and it's easily adoptable, especially when you're using, and I know cryptocurrency, and that's a whole separate conversation, but when you're having uh, payment gateway systems that are technically anonymous, and then you have methods for people to sort of build startups in this environment, then it becomes a situation where it, you know, everyone's going to jump in. When it comes to the fact that that being that that market sort of exploding on its own, I do think that the reduction of the statistical probability of being hacked or penetrated can be reduced. And I think it comes down to 
organizations really seriously thinking about their security as a program, starting with the basics. We don't need to make it complicated. We don't need to go and sit there and say, we have to do 130 controls and invest you know, hundreds of thousands and to millions of dollars in order to really be truly secure. That's not necessarily the case. As I mentioned before, a lot of times when companies get hit, it's getting hit by inexperienced hackers, developers. And so if you follow the basic principles and figure out how to consistently follow them, you're a step ahead, most organizations. But these attacks are going to happen. What's going to be interesting is how fast the market matures. Entry-level people coming into the hacker business model, basically, they're going to start to learn more and they're going to get more experience. And the services and the tool sets, the technology is, is just going to get more and more sophisticated, which means it's going to get more and more complicated to manage. But if you start now and you start getting your feet wet in this, as it gets complicated, your learning curve is not as steep. And I think that's, again, all about reducing the statistical odds, not 100% prevention. Great. Thanks, Alec. This has been a great conversation, a lot of great learning, awesome. particularly for me. <laughs> thanks again for joining us. I appreciate today. it. Thanks for the time. And it was, it was really fun. Thanks for listening to this edition of Charlie's Corner, brought to you by Iroquois Group. I am Edwin K. Morris, and I invite you to join us for the next edition of the Trusted Advisor Podcast.